Well, church, let me encourage you, if you would, to go ahead and grab your Bible and join me in the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. And if you are new to Shades this morning, we, we started this last week uh, in Ephesians 4, but we actually started this series last spring, walking through the first uh, three chapters of Ephesians, and we're picking up right now to go through the remaining three chapters of Ephesians. So if you want to know where we're going on Sunday morning in, in the weeks and even months ahead, we're going to be in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, 5, and 6 for the remainder of the fall. And this is the second week, so we're going to pick up right where we left off last week week in verse 4 of Ephesians 4. And if you need a Bible, we've got them all around the room. We would encourage you to grab one so that you can see for yourself what the Word of God is saying as we walk through this time. And before I read our opening scripture and get into this message, though, I do want to let you know of something amazing that is going to be happening tonight in this room. Ladies, this is for you, for, our, for, for all the, the women of shades and all of your friends and acquaintances and, and even the people you're not so sure about that are ladies, they're all invited. Tonight is breathe and it's going to be amazing. And at five o'clock, the doors will open for coffee and dessert. Who doesn't want that? But then at six o'clock, it's going to be an amazing night of worship and a truly, truly powerful story uh, of the gospel at work in the life of a lady here at Shades. You want to hear this story and you want your friends to hear this story. So I want to encourage you, ladies, do whatever you can to be here tonight and to bring somebody with you. Because it really is going to be a powerful night celebrating the gift of the gospel and the power of life change. And you don't want to miss it. So come back tonight. Five o'clock, the doors open. Six o'clock, the service will begin. Now let's step into our text for this morning. Ephesians chapter four. Again, beginning in verse four. And I'm going to read through verse six to get us going. We're going to go all the way to verse 10 today, Lord willing. But I want to read verses four through six to get us started here this morning, I'd like to invite you, if you would, to stand back up with me as I read these verses to get going in this message. And the reason why we do this, uh, if you're new to Shades, we want you to understand why we're doing what we're doing. The reason why we stand at the reading of God's word is because every single one of us in this room, every single person gathering online, we need to be reminded when we turn our attention to the Bible, to the Holy Scripture, we are turning our attention to the foundation that we stand upon. The word of God is the solid rock foundation that the church of Jesus Christ stands upon and has stood upon for thousands of years. The unshakable, immovable, inerrant word of God. We need to be reminded of this foundation that we stand upon. And we need to be reminded in reverence that when we open the word, God speaks to us what he says is right and good and true. We need to hear what God says is right and good and true. And so we turn our attention to the word to see what the Lord lays before us as we gather in his name. So that's why we're standing. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 4, says this. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One Spirit, one Lord, one Father. We're talking about what it means to live out our calling. 
And here we see through the Trinity of God, we're going to talk about in just a moment, there is the authority and the power to draw the people of God together as one so that we live in such a way that the world sees the gospel alive in us and we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. That's what we talked about last week. So let's pray right now through the power of God's word and this message of scripture about the unity of the body of Christ that we would hear what the Lord desires for us to hear. Let's pray together. Father, as we stand before you now, we, we are coming from a lot of different places in life. We're bringing a lot of different circumstances into this place. There's a lot of different decisions to be made, a lot of different burdens that are being shouldered. There's a lot of things going on in our lives, Lord. And so as we turn our attention to you, we are asking you to do what only you can do in the power of your spirit. We're asking you to speak into all of our lives and all of our situations as you speak to us collectively through your word. My prayer is that we would be open, that we would be receptive, that we would listen, that our hearts would be ready to receive what you say. Lord, we, we need to hear from you. So we pray that you'd have your way among us for your glory. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for standing. You can, you can be seated. And as I get going in this message, I, I just want to remind us all of something very important. We're, we're now within the two-week window, less than two weeks, till the beginning of college football season. That's a big deal, right? I mean, I, it's a really, really big deal. And I'm excited. I, I hope you're excited. Is anybody excited about college football? Like somebody, all right, some are more excited than others. I do want you to know as a South Carolina fan, August is my favorite month because we haven't lost anything. <laughs> Optimism's high. We're feeling good about life. We're ready to take on the world. But I do love the beginning of college football season. I love everything about the college football season. But my favorite part, I really, I want to share this. And we're going to put some pictures from some different places on the screen. My favorite part of college football is the beginning of the game. It really is. When the team comes out of the tunnel, everybody in the stadium is on their feet, many times jumping up and down, going crazy. Everybody's fired up. Everybody's ready. Everybody, listen to this, is unified. Everybody has come together in their love for their team, their love for their school. It's this amazing picture of unity right at the beginning of the game, right? I think part of the reason I love the beginning of the game as a Carolina fan, we've got a picture of this. The beginning of the game usually really is the most exciting part of the game for us. But I do want you to notice as Carolina fans, the beginning of the game, when we're all going crazy, we're jumping up and down. I've been known to just bear hug a complete stranger and like, you know, high five people I don't know. I mean, it's exciting. There is unity. But at the beginning of the game, we are waving white towels. Just go with me for a second. Before the game starts, we pull out little white flags and wave them at the other team. I have no idea why. But over and over again, every game, that's what we do, and it usually plays out that way. Surrender happens on the field. So I've got to enjoy the beginning, right? It is amazing. But seriously, if you think about this, not only in college football, really any big sporting event, 
where you're part of the home team, where you go to a great concert, everybody's singing songs that they all know. You're seeing this, this, this brief, short, little expression of differences being laid aside and everybody focusing on one thing that in that moment they believe is the most important thing. And there's unity there. The differences get laid aside. Now the differences get picked back up, right? Once the game starts and somebody doesn't like a call or somebody's had a little too much over here and gets too loud and annoying and then fights break out and then that carries. I mean, like that all goes, yeah, the differences come back. But in that brief moment, there is the differences laid aside and unity is on display. There's a really amazing picture of this in the scripture. I love that last song we just sang. Because in that song, you're getting this beautiful theology of the church. And there's this line that says the church of Christ was born and the spirit lit the flame. At the beginning of the church, we see God do something absolutely supernatural and divine. And as the Spirit of God falls on those first followers of Jesus after the resurrection and the ascension into heaven by Jesus, the Spirit falls. The day's called Pentecost, and it really is amazing what breaks out as the church of Christ is born, thrust onto the scene. And there's this amazing unity that begins to develop in this bond of people that are saying, we believe that there is one thing that is the most important thing. Look at what it says in Acts 2, 43, right after the events of Pentecost, as several thousand people have placed their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord right here in this spot. It's this incredible, incredible scene. It says, and all came upon every soul, Acts 2, 43, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And listen to this, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. It's an amazing statement. All who were believed were together and had all things in common. How in the world can that be said? Because this is several thousand people at the beginning of the church, several thousand brand new believers coming from many different walks of life, many different cultural experiences even, many different backgrounds, many different stories, many different socioeconomic steps on the ladder, many different places. They've now come together and because of one thing, they are believing is the most important thing. They are so unified around that one thing, that to those who are looking, it looks like they have everything in common. Their differences have taken a back seat. The one thing, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, the finished work of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that one thing is the most important thing. And the church is so unified on this one thing it's like everything else fades to the background. All who believed were together and had all things in common. This is what the Apostle Paul is pointing to here in Ephesians chapter 4 as we step back into our text for today. He's calling the church of Jesus Christ 
to unity, to a unity that is only possible when there is one thing that is so important to us, so life-changing for us, so incredible in the, the power that it provides us, that it changes every other aspect of our life, and everything fades to the background so that that one thing can be exalted. It draws us together as one in the people of God. And here's what's really cool. This real reveals how important our doctrine is, our theological understanding of the word of God. These three verses, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, are showing us the power of the doctrine of the Trinity and how it is the doctrine of the Trinity unified Father, Son, and Spirit, one God manifest in three persons, one God monotheistic revealed in three distinct personalities, if you will. The doctrine of the Trinity displays for us the beautiful unity that we are called to as people of God. And it's the doctrine of the Trinity here in the Word of God that empowers us to live as one, that unites us together. For the cause of Christ. Ephesians 4, 4, let's look at it again. First, we see the unifying power of the Holy Spirit. The scripture says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one body of Christ, one family of God drawn together by one spirit, one Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit that has been made available and lives in the life of every follower of Jesus Christ. From the time that the church was born at that, that amazing moment of Pentecost that we see in Acts 2 until now and until Christ. Christ returns. Every person who trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord has trusted Jesus Christ from the promptings of the Spirit, has then been filled with the Spirit at the moment of salvation, and then is empowered to live out their faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing thing to consider. Some very significant power that has been given to those who are followers of of Christ. I want to turn your attention to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul, in a different letter, this one to the church in Rome, he writes about the power of the Spirit in these verses. And, and listen to the way he describes the power of the Spirit of God that has been made available to the people of God, that has been given to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. It says, You, however are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. If you are a follower of Christ, you are in the spirit because the spirit of God dwells in you, Paul's saying. Anyone who does not have the spirit does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And then listen to this. This is amazing to think about the power of the spirit inside of those who are followers of Jesus. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Did you catch that? The same Holy Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead the same Holy Spirit of God 
that defeated sin and death through the resurrection, raising Christ from the dead, the same spirit of God that fell on the first believers at Pentecost, that spirit, that power is alive inside of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. That should impact the way we live. That should impact the way we pray. That should impact the things we think about. It should impact the places we go. The power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in those who are followers of Jesus Christ. The question is, do we live in such a way that we listen to the Spirit's promptings? When my mentor said to me many years ago, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. It's not loud, not obnoxious. He's a gentleman. He's just nudging. Just nudging, little promptings, little promptings. Are we listening to the promptings of the Spirit? I know at times we can be nervous talking about the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? The Spirit of God is part of the Trinity of God, one of the manifestations of the one true God and the Spirit of God. Please do not miss this. This is so important. This is where there's so much confusion about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God always points to Jesus. The Spirit of God never distracts from Jesus, ever. So if you're ever among people who are talking about needing the Spirit for this or needing the Spirit for that, and it has nothing to do with Jesus, they don't know what they're talking about according to the Word of God. The Spirit of God always seeks to magnify, exalt, and lift up the name of Jesus. And where the Spirit of God is actively moving, the name of Jesus will be honored and glorified above all else. And when the name of Jesus is honored and glorified above all else through the power of the Spirit, there is a unity among those people, among those believers, among that body that is captivating. When Jesus is the main thing, in the power of the Spirit, there is a oneness, a oneness that comes for the people of God. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, Paul goes on to say, after he talks about the one Spirit that we have that reveals our calling. He says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Here we see a sec- the second person of the Trinity, Here we see the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. And this short little verse is of tremendous significance because of what it says for the church, especially as it relates to what it says to the church in regards to connecting with our culture or interacting with our culture. I want you to know Ephesians chapter 4 verse 5 is one of the most offensive verses that our culture today could ever hear. There is one Lord. His name is Jesus. There is one true faith. There is one baptism that reveals that faith has been received. It serves as a testimony of the good news of the gospel. There is one Lord and one true faith. We live in a culture that says, no, 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 
You can't make statements like that. I mean, I hurt people's feelings. No, 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 all, all faiths, no, they're all equally valid. Just have faith in something, just believe in something. Everybody's gonna get to the same place in the end. What, what matters is that we just believe in something. No. No, the word of God says there is one Lord, one faith. Jesus says this in John chapter 14 about himself. He makes this audacious Offensive claim about himself. John 14, 6, as he's interacting with his disciples, he said to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And then this is where it gets really offensive in our culture. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And right now, this may even be making some of you nervous. I mean, isn't that closed-minded? Isn't that super exclusive? How in the world can we, can we say something that is this offensive to so many in our culture who want to believe so many different things and want to be, be universalistic and politically correct in all that is said? How in the world can we stand on what the Word of God says? presents a question to every follower of Jesus, a question that we must wrestle with. Will we trust and believe what our culture says is acceptable? Or will we trust and believe what the word of God says is right and good and true? We must wrestle with that question. Students, you're gonna wrestle with that question over and over again. There are a lot of people telling us how we should believe and what we should believe. Do we believe what our culture says or do we believe what the word of God says is right and good and true? And this is what we really do need to understand about the gospel. The gospel is offensive. It is. It's offensive. The gospel says you're a sinner. That's not what people want to hear. Not only are you a sinner, but you can't save yourself. You can't fix this. But you're like, I want to try, I want to try. You can't fix this. And not only that, you're actually actually a lot worse than you thought you were. That's offensive. That's incredibly offensive. But at the same time, and here's what we must understand, at the same time as the gospel shows us who we really are and what our need truly is, the gospel says to us, you are more loved than you ever thought possible. And God has done more for you than you can truly comprehend. And God has invited you to to move from death to life, from darkness to light. God is offering his grace and mercy and forgiveness to you. And yes, Jesus is the only way because Jesus is the only son of God who gave his life on a cross, shedding his perfect blood so that your sin could be forgiven and you could be right with the Father. And isn't that amazing that he did that for you? That's incredible. But the gospel is offensive. What we really need to consider as people of God in our time, in our culture today, is is it the gospel in our life that's offensive? Or is it other things in our life that are offensive? 
Is it the gospel in our life that's offensive? Are people so offended because they see Jesus in you? Or are people so offended because they see someone who's a jerk with religious views? What is offensive about our lives? Is it Jesus? Because Jesus will be offensive. We can't make the gospel cool. It's offensive. But is it the gospel that's offending people? Or is it the other things we're saying about the other issues we're passionate about and the way we're saying it as we interact with people who don't agree with us? You see, for the church of Jesus Christ that is united under the sun, that is united in the good news of Jesus, we should be a reflection of Jesus when we share the offensive gospel so that we share the offensive gospel in such a way that it's actually beautiful, gracious, and kind. For that's the heart of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus for his followers. And when we come together as one under the authority of Christ, making much of Jesus, seeking to share what Christ has done in us, we will be united together in such a way that it truly does stand out in the world around us. There is one Lord, one faith, One baptism, what a beautiful expression of baptism we got to experience today. Man, I don't know about you, but when that baptism took place this morning, I was ready to run through a wall. It was awesome. The testimony, the excitement, the joy of what we are celebrating in the gift of baptism, it draws the people of God together. This is why the church of Jesus Christ must be seeking over and over again to share the good news, to invite others in so that more and more people can receive the joy of baptism, sharing their faith, demonstrating a witness. It gets us all fired up. And it reminds us of what matters most. When there's no baptisms taking place in a church, it's really easy to argue about the color of the carpet. When there's no life change being celebrated in a church, it's really easy to to get all bent out of shape over a certain style of music. But when we're being reminded that lives are changing in the power of the gospel, when we're being reminded of, of what that is for us, that, yeah, I I was baptized as a follower of Christ. And when I see them baptized, it reminds me of what God has done for me. It reminds me of the power of the gospel to change a life. That fires me up and that draws me together with other believers to celebrate. Be thankful for the power of the gospel that unites us. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then verse six, we see the Father We see the third person of the Trinity here, one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. One God and Father over all, through all, and in all. When I read that verse, I just can't help but think about my own family of origin and my two brothers, I'm the oldest of three boys. And if you saw me and my two brothers together, Andrew, my middle brother, uh, runs a construction company in Atlanta. David, my younger brother, is an attorney in Atlanta. I'm the older brother pastor. It really sounds like the beginning of a joke, right? The pastor, the 
construction worker and the attorney get together in a bar. Well, it's a Baptist church, so not in a bar. We get together, you know, at a Barons game. Um, no, so when we get together, you would know, you would know that we are brothers. You would see that, like when the three of us are standing together. But at the same time, the older we've gotten, the more this is magnified. I mean, it's amazing. While we have some similarities, we are so different, so different. I mean, the things we're interested in are different. The way we're wired, the way we interact with people are different. The, the way we process decisions. I mean, like, we are so different, even though we have so many similarities as brothers. But when we get together, I mean, there is a bond that's there. There's a love for one another, being a part of the same family. And here's what's really kind of crazy. Our wives would laugh about this. When we get together, there is evidence of our dad all over us. Our mannerisms, the way we speak, the way we walk, the way we kind of put our head to the side when we're thinking about something. Like There are mannerisms that we all share as brothers because we share a father. And so we are a reflection of our father. But in our differences, in our differences, because of the bond we have as brothers, so much love and joy when we get together. I would propose to you, I would propose that this image of the family that is talked about in the word of God and the bond that can be alive among brothers and sisters in Christ is even stronger than a bond that can happen in a household between siblings if, if the gospel is at the center. Some of you have siblings who are not followers of Christ and you love them and you pray for them and you want to see them, but you really don't have the most important thing in common. And so when you're together, it's, it's obvious that the most important thing is not in common. But some of you have brothers or sisters that, that are followers of Christ and you get together and you have the most important thing in common. And so it's like you really do share all things, even in all of your differences because the father is reflected in the children. It's amazing to consider what the word of God is laying before us that when we recognize through the good news of the gospel that we are going back to where we started verse four that we are part of one body one family of God with one father a perfectly holy righteous father it creates a oneness among the children of God when we are reminded that the Father is being reflected to, through us. This unity in the bond of Christ is so beautiful and so powerful, and it sends us out on mission to live the faith that we have been called to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. That's what we saw last week. And that's where Paul begins to take us in verse seven. We're just gonna hit this real quickly because we're gonna pick this up next week. I wanna get through verses seven through 10 real fast and then we're gonna pick up on the specific spiritual gifts that begun, become uh, to be discussed in Ephesians chapter four. So verse seven, this is what it says. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore it says, he ascended on high. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts 
to men. So what is this all about? Well, verse 7, the Apostle Paul is beginning to take us now to this place of where we are talking about what it means to live out our faith and specific ways that we live out our faith. And he's going to deal with specific roles in the body of Christ, roles in the church, and what this means is we live out our faith. But as he takes us there, he's reminding us that every single follower of Christ has received gifts of grace that empower us to live the life of a Christian that we have been called to through Jesus Christ. Every follower of Christ has received gifts of grace, gifts that utilize our natural wiring or abilities and magnify the work of the Spirit in us for the glory of God. Every single follower of Christ has gifts from God to be used for the glory of God. And he references an Old Testament passage in verse 8 when he's talking about this. He's drawing our attention back to Psalm chapter 68. And I would recommend you write that down, read it later today or this week in your quiet time. Psalm 68 is a psalm of victory. It's talking about the victory of the Lord. And as the psalmist is talking about the victory of the Lord, the psalmist is is inviting us to see what was the cultural norm at the time when a king was victorious in a new land, when a king conquered a new territory, all the spoils of war would be gathered from that kingdom and would be brought back to the victorious king to be presented to the king in his palace. Showed the power and the authority of the king. And as Paul points to this Psalm 68, he is saying, our victorious king that has gathered the spoils of war, if you will, and has everything at his fingertips, graciously turns to his children and gives good gifts through the power of his spirit so that we can live the life that we have been called to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's magnifying the generosity of our God to give us gifts of grace so that we can live for the glory of God. I love this quote from Pastor Tony Merida. He says this about these verses. There is another example of how Jesus is portrayed as a giver. In turn, we are to be givers. We are to be generous with the gifts and resources we have received. These gifts are ways in which we extend the ministry of Jesus on earth. We have been given gifts by God, gifts of grace. We are called to utilize and and lay those gifts back before him in such a way that he is glorified in the way that we live. This is an amazing gift to recognize in the good news of the gospel and the generosity of our God. We're going to be talking more specifically about those gifts in the weeks ahead. But I love what Paul does here, and this is the way we're going to close. Because as Paul is leading us to this place where we're going to talk about the gifts and talk about the way that we live out our faith practically and talk about what this means for the church and our interaction with the world, every time he makes a statement, he then goes right back to the gospel. Verse seven, you have been given gifts of grace. Verse eight, they are a reflection of the victory of the king. Verse nine and 10, let me remind you that these gifts are yours because of the gospel, because of the finished work 
of Jesus. That's what it says in verses nine and 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. What is Paul doing? He's centering us back on the gospel. He's saying, hey, we're going to talk about practically what it means to live the faith and what these gifts are all about and the way God has empowered you and the way God has been generous. As we do that, I know there's going to be a tendency for you to look at those gifts and go, man, I'm pretty great. Look at what I've done. Look at the way I've served. Look at all that I've given. And Paul's going, no, don't go there. When the gifts are demonstrated... When someone is generous with what they have received, they are a reflection of the one who gave it to them. So don't make this about you. Make this about Jesus. That's where the bond is. That's where the unity is. That's where the oneness is. Don't get distracted on, oh, look at my gifts. Look at his gifts. Look at her gifts. No. Look at Jesus. And remember that he has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. He descended from heaven, taking on flesh to live on this earth for 33 years, a life without sin, offering that perfect sinless life at the cross as the perfect worthy sacrifice for my sin and your sin, defeated sin and death through the power of the resurrection, ascended back to heaven where he is seated on high, reigning and ruling. He is the point. Focus on Jesus. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Over and over again, go back to what Jesus Christ has done. Do not get distracted from the gospel, for the gospel is the good news that sets us free. And church, it's the gospel that unifies us. And it's the gospel that empowers us and propels us out into the world to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. It's all about Jesus. So may we fix our eyes on Jesus. Let me pray for us as we close. Heavenly Father, I praise you for the incredible good news that you have laid before your church. The good news that we have been not only saved from our sin through the gift of the cross and the power of the resurrection, but the good news that we have been invited into a body, a family, as one, united under the authority of you, the Father, in the good news of what Jesus the Son has done and in the power of the Spirit, we get to be together as one for your glory. And so, Lord, it is my prayer that more and more our attention would be so fixed on Jesus that our differences would, would fade to the background and the things that could divide us would just fade away because we are looking at what you have done. So, Lord, draw us together as one. Because a group of people that stand together as one in a divided world stand out. And we want to stand out for your glory. We want to stand out 
because of the good news that we have received. We wanna stand out because of the hope that we have in the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Father, I pray that you would use us to that end. And if there are things in our lives that have created division between us and other believers, Lord, would you, would you highlight those? Would you show us what those are so that we can, we can lay that before the cross? And we can be reminded of the bond that draws us together in Christ. And we can stand together in one spirit, empowered to live for you above all things. And Father, as we close this time today, I, I just want to pray for those who have been perhaps wrestling with their faith or struggling to determine what they believe. Maybe, maybe they're here today having been in church many different times on many different occasions, and yet they're just, they just have not gotten to that place of saying, you know, I, I really am ready to trust Jesus. I'm really ready to go all in with the good news of the gospel. I'm really ready to cross that line of faith, but Lord, you're stirring, and you've been stirring for some time. Lord, I pray that today would be that day where they would say, yes, this, this is what I need to hear. The, the gospel is what I need to hear. I've been making it about these other things. I've been trying real hard to figure out how I can save myself through my works or whatever, but Lord, today I'm ready to follow Jesus. And we thank you for the beauty and the simplicity of the invitation. And if anyone calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for that good news. We pray that anyone among us who have yet to receive that good news would step out on faith today and say, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. And Lord, we celebrate, oh, we celebrate the beautiful power of the gospel to change lives. Thank you for what you have done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.